what would you tell your, let's just say, you know, 21 year old self, you know, knowing what you, what you know now on, on living well? Try to collect a more diverse set of experiences. I think that learning, learning more different things make us into uh, rich individuals with lots to draw on. And how do you invest in yourself and your own uh, set of experiences? Dan Ariely, as you can see, is worth listening to on pretty much any topic. In this interview, we touch upon college, lying, Alzheimer's, relationships, online dating, and even decision-making processes under erections. I was asking for a friend, I swear. All right, here's Dan. Hey, last time we spoke a lot about product and had a a great chat, but this time I want to talk about how your research relates to to living well. You do a lot of work on relationships, on happiness and career, and I want to talk to you about all of it. I will try. I will try to comply, but I have to say that uh, it's something that I'm doing some research on. But uh, personally, I've not uh, not found the the right formula yet. So it's a continuous struggle, and we need to have this caution as a starting point. How much do you think you know your research and academia in general can help people live more fulfilling lives? I think I think very much. So I think that we have very bad intuitions about what makes us happy. And I think to the extent that these intuitions are bad, uh, we, can, we can make better decisions. I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, so one thing that, that we know is that commuting is a drainer, is a dramatic drainer on quality of life. And the reason for that is that there's lots of things that we get used to. Commuting is not one of them. And why? Because it's unpredictable. So if you lived in a a country that had a train system and you knew you could leave home at 7.45 and get to work at 8.55 and you know everything would work well, then you could actually use your commute to relax, to read, to listen to podcasts, to whatever you do, and, and you would not get stressed. But in the U.S., when we commute with cars, and this is unpredictable, you leave home and you wonder, will I get there on time or not? And because of that, you're never able to relax. Uh, so because of that, commuting in the U.S., is something that we don't get used to. Adaptation is a great part of uh, human behavior, but it doesn't apply to uh, commuting. So for example, when I decided uh, where to live, uh, knowing that, I basically decided to try and minimize my commute because I knew that commuting was uh, was well. I was a little bit uh, over-anxious about this actually. So when I moved offices and my commute moved from uh, six minutes to nine minutes, I was uh, anxious about that, but it ended up not being a big, a big deal. So I think, I think if you think about that uh, example, that's a good case of something that research can tell you, hey, you haven't been paying attention to commuting. You think about the size of the house and you think about whether you have a garden or not, mm-hmm. but, but commuting is actually something that is uh, very important to pay attention to. So I think there's lots of things like that on the relationship between happiness and in life. I'll give you another example. It, it turns out that we keep on comparing ourselves to our neighbors. Right? They create a very salient comparison and our kids compare ourselves to our neighbors. Uh, so then you ask yourself, uh, who do I want to compare myself to and who do I want my kids to compare them themselves to? And, and that could give you some insight into who do you want to live in a close proximity to. Again, you, you want to think differently about your neighbors. 
when you think about where you're going to live. So all of those, I think, are kind of good examples of something that social science is helping us think about life in a way that we might not think uh, without it. And is the lesson there, you know, put yourself next to neighbors who you want to, you know, emulate or who you admire? Or... Absolutely. Things that you want to be compared to and you want your kids to compare themselves to, uh, those, are the, those are the kind of neighbors that you, that you, want, to, you want to have. I remember reading a study related to your first point, reading a study somewhere where it said that there were a few people, Barack Obama might have been one of them, who don't have that much diversity in what they wear or what they eat, or they try to minimize decision-making when it comes to uh, decisions that aren't you know, super important so they can focus on, on what's really important. Are you a believer in that? So, so the best example for this, I think, is Oliver Sacks. And Oliver Sacks, uh, the, the very famous uh, psychiatrist, neurologist, and he basically eats the same thing for a whole month. Mm-hmm. Uh, or he goes, he finds something that he likes to eat, and he just eats the same, the same thing with, with the same notion that he doesn't want to uh, spend time on that. Now, I am not as extreme uh, <laughs> as, as people are. Uh, also, you know, Obama has lots of people taking care of him and uh, deciding about all kinds of things that he is going to, mm-hmm. to do. So it's not... You know, he has, he has people uh, working for him. Uh, but I certainly think that there's lots of details of life that are not worth obsessing over. What do you tell, you know, college students how, how to think about their career as, as they're graduating? I basically tell them to think about their career as a long sequence of things that they should practice for. You know, often people think about, okay, I graduate and now I choose a career. Well, in fact, this is not the case. Uh, careers are very long-lasting. We don't really know what the future would hold. We don't know what kind of skills we would have to acquire. Um, so when I, when I graduated, you know, academics have a very simple life because mm-hmm. when we graduate, it's clear that we become professors, right? There's not a big mystery of what's, what's the next step. Um, but one of my advisors, uh, when I thought about which schools I should go to, he said, uh, go to the school that it would make you the most different person five years from now. And I thought about it. It was a very interesting advice, right? And it wasn't as if he didn't like me. Or he said, you know, you're such a disgraceful person. You know, you need to go and change. But his, his advice was basically, you know, it's true that you're getting your job. It seems like, you know, you're just out of school and you're getting your first start in your career. But the reality is that careers are long. And... The, the question would be, what would make you a good person, a, a valuable person uh, many years down the road, not just on this uh, path, not just for this, uh, for this first, uh, first job? And I kept on thinking, this is right. You know, so I took, I took a job. It was not actually the job I would have taken if I tried to do the, the things I knew how to do the best. So I, Ever since my PhD, I was very much like a lab person. I would do most of my work in a research lab. I was comfortable with this. And there were some universities that had actually good facilities and good labs and lots of people who were doing lab-based research. And instead, I, I picked a place where there were very few people in my field. And I forced myself to study many different things and try to overcome some challenges. Uh, for people who do the kind of work uh, I do. And I think actually it was a good idea at the end because I really learned a lot. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of advice I try to um, 
share with other people is that, you know, think about career as a long-term learning experience. You'll keep on learning for a long time. And what would maximize your learning for the next three years? And that's, and that's the kind of thing you should look for. What do you think about the idea that some people, you know, like Peter Thiel or you know, other people are uh, you know, promoting that if you're not going to be a, uh, you know, an academic or a doctor or certain, you know, pre-trade professor, uh, professional paths, that maybe college isn't the best, you know, path and maybe you can create your own learning experience. Uh, so, so I think it's, it's irresponsible nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, and <clears throat> look, uh, college is expensive. There's no question about it. <clears throat> and I also think it's um, also true that uh, not everybody benefits from college, and I think that not everybody benefits equally from college. Uh, but the idea that this is not a very good, worthwhile enterprise, I think, is wrong. So, mm-hmm. so first of all, the till himself, right? He takes some students. He tells them, "Don't go to college, and come to hang out with him instead." <laughs> and then he gives them an experience that would be incredibly expensive. Uh, to achieve, right? right? So he gets all kinds of amazing people to come and meet with these students and mentor them and so on. So he's not really standing up to his... He's not sending those kids by themselves to the world to fight. Instead, right. he's giving them a really incredibly expensive college education. Just, you know, <laughs> structured differently. Yeah. Uh, but I think there's something incredibly dishonest. I don't think intentionally. Right. right? But I think it's, it's, it's not right to say that what he's doing is not the same as college. If he had, you know, he gets he gets all his friends to come for free, but if, if he had to pay all of those people, that would be an incredibly expensive right. um, college experience. So, so I think that his approach is wrong. But, but the thing is, I, I think that college is, is a long-term investment and you don't really know what you will get. Um, but I, I have the following approach. I think that if a student come to my class and in the semester they get one good idea that they'll use sometime in their career, uh, they've probably justified the whole year of education. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's, um, not, it's not that it's taking just my class, they're taking lots of other classes as well. And um, the reality is that science and education has a very large random component. There's a, there was a paper many years ago, over 100 years ago, in which somebody uh, took the horseshoe crab and basically documented the way that the receptive cells in the eye of the horseshoe crab uh, were organized and the relationship between them. And that's an incredibly long, painful effort. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but eventually something called lateral inhibition came out of this. This is the understanding of how cells work together and how they change the relationship between each other. And that has been a central finding in biology and in computer science and artificial intelligence. But, you know, you wouldn't know up front that this would be such life-changing uh, event. And I think education is like that. I think students could take a class and not know that it will be transforming in their lives, but later on really, really use that. So, you know, if you're talking about somebody who's going to be a welder, right, they would probably become a better welder if they just focused on learning welding. But even if you are a welder, at some point there might be questions that you haven't, you don't know how to deal with. 
And the reality is that life is becoming much more complex and much more demanding. Think about something like statistics. Um, it's hard to imagine that you could live in the world and not understand statistics. Mm-hmm. Because after all, at some point, you'll have to make some decisions with statistics. You'll have to make some decisions about your own health and your own investments and uh, politics and all kinds of things. If you don't understand statistics, what are the what are the chances that you'll be able to make those decisions in the right way? Very, very low. Um, I also think that I'm a big fan of the American education system in the sense that I think that being in a... I grew up in Israel and I did my BA in Israel, so, so I didn't get the same four-year college experience. But I think that being in college, surrounded by people who are just studying all the time, you know, most of the time, is an incredibly important aspect. You know, look, after after a first world war and then after second world war the US government came up with the realization of how important academia was for innovation and if you think about NIH and SF DARPA you think about all of these agencies that support academic it's because we understand that science is something that is actually incredibly hard to do mm-hmm. it needs lots of effort lots of care and there's lots of randomness in it, but, but if you want to advance in society, those are the things to, to advance. And, you know, you can ask yourself, out of the real investments in society, how many of them were developed without academics and how many of them were developed outside with no help from universities whatsoever? And, you know, the reality is that there's not that many, right? So, oh, you could say Facebook. You can, you can say maybe Facebook was not. <clears throat> but, you know, the Internet was done on DARPA's money, TCP, IP, Java. You just think about all the infrastructure and technology that have been developed by academics and with big grants from the government. And and to say that we don't need it and people should just uh, be self-educated, I think it belittles the value of real expertise. Right. So, you know, I remember going to classes of statistics, let's say, and taking classes for people who are just amazing statisticians. And, you know, sometimes they went over something I knew already. But nevertheless, they would say something in that class, like one sentence that would make me appreciate the whole endeavor in a slightly different light. Mm-hmm. Some of those statements have stayed with me for, you know, 30 years now. So I think it's true, you know, not all education is great and not all education is great for all, all people. But, but imagine that you came, I teach at Duke, imagine you came to Duke and, and you had a chance to uh, take my class. And there are many other people like me, right? But, right. but, but this, is, this is not the same as reading a book. Right. You have a chance to take a class with some of the world's experts and not just take a class. You can come to office hours and you can come and work with them in the lab. So, of course, there's lots of ways to uh, squander uh, four years of college. And, you know, get uh, drink too much and, and celebrate too much and not get enough value out of this. Uh, but there's also a tremendous value. If you think about this is the basic training that you're going to use for the rest of your life. I think uh, it's incumbent on you to, to make it the best education possible so that you can uh, have a good foundation for the rest of your life. Some people point to Israel and say that, you know, my family is Israeli as well, that they think, uh, you know, American kids should also go through some sort of volunteer service before going to 
to college. Did you think that the Army was similarly an amazing educational experience, or did you think that's overrated? I think, I think the Army is an amazing experience for multiple uh, levels. Um, first of all, it gives people an incredibly uh, important practical training. So let's think just about computer science for a second. Imagine that you go to the Army, and for three or four years, you're, you, you have to deal with all kinds of very difficult ancient computer systems. You develop some new ones. You have to debug code. Um, and then after three or four years of that, you go to college and then you study computer science. Your understanding of what's important, right. what's needed, what are big uh, problems that face the industry is very, very different. Mm-hmm. So I think that some kind of understanding of the, of the world is actually very important and useful from that perspective. So I think it's both practical training that helps you view your academic training in a better way, as well as you get a lot of uh, specific skills. Um, so I, I think that something like uh, this is actually very important. And, you, you, you know, thankfully the U.S. is not in the same perpetual state of war as in Israel. But, but I think, you know, I love academia. I really admire American uh, academia. Uh, but nevertheless, I, th- I think there are some ways that we can think about improving it. You know, maybe not for everybody, but uh, for some people. And I think that some better understanding of what the world needs and some practical mm-hmm. challenges is certainly a, a good direction. Right. I think people aren't criticizing as much, you know, everyone knows it's, it's too expensive and, and the research, you know, is, is separate from the undergraduate education. The research is fantastic, but some people say that the undergraduate education, where I think there's some nuance, could have more practical, you know, training. And also some people say, and I'm curious to get your, your in, input on, is there a place for moral education? And, you know, separate from like religious education, obviously, but the, you know, David Brooks writes a lot about this. Do, does moral education have a place on, on, on campus? Or? Uh, so just to finish the, the previous sure. discussion, I think that doing something <clears throat> with practical training is very important. And actually practical training is, is, you know, there's lots of ways to think about it. But for example, I get lots of undergrads who come to my lab and they learn how to do experiments. Right, and and we do experiments uh, sometimes with companies and sometimes with non-for-profits. It's not that they learn, you know, what what problems McKinsey is facing, uh, but they are learning practical skills of how to run experiments in in the real in the real world. So I think even within mm-hmm. academia, there are ways to get more more experience. And then, in terms of moral education, I think absolutely. So imagine a timeline. Imagine that you have time before you are tempted to behave dishonestly. You have the moment that you're tempted to behave dishonestly. And you have the moment after. Uh, Usually, or the time after. uh, Usually, the, the system is designed to think about the time after. That's where punishment comes in, right? Mm-hmm. It says, you will think about the time after you commit a crime, about the probability of being caught, about the size of your punishment. We will make the punishment large, and because of that, you will decide it's not worth your time. I think that we need to pay more attention to the um, education, and I think we need to pay more attention to the moment of temptation. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the reality is that the, the thought about what will happen afterward is just not something that is driving behavior generally. And I'll give you one very sad example. This is the death penalty. Mm-hmm. 
So, so some states have the death penalty, some states don't. And if you look in the, in the U.S., um, the states that, that have the death penalty don't have a lower crime rate in the areas that, describe, that, that are punished by death. Now, it's, of course, it's not a randomized controlled trial, right? But, but the, the best we can look at the statistics, we don't find any difference, suggesting that even in an area so important, something you can, you know, die uh, because of, uh, people don't seem to be uh, sensitive to, to the death penalty and don't reduce the crime because of that. So I think that we need to focus a lot about education, and I think we need to focus about at the moment of temptation. Mm-hmm. My last academic question, then I want to move to, to relationships. Do academics, do they do a great job in their research? Do they need to do a better job at kind of translating that research for the public or promoting themselves and, or taking credit for, for the work that they do? Or is that, you know, should they focus 100% of the research and leave the translating to journalists or other people who kind of take the credit in some ways for their ideas? I, I'm not sure that, that I, I know the right, the right answer for this. Uh, so, you know, of course, I pick this path, right? So I do research and I... Uh... But you're a rare example where you can speak to the public in TED Talks and you can write books that are read by, you know, many people. And... So, but, you know, to, to say this is what I think everybody should do, I, I don't think that's what everybody should do. I'll give you one example. Uh, the last two years, I chose to teach a class on Coursera. This, uh, this is an online platform. Lots of students took this class. It gave me tremendous satisfaction. I had students from almost every country in the world. Countries I didn't know had internet, uh, had, had students in the, in the class. This was an unbelievable undertaking. I think we spent something like 5,000 hours creating uh, this uh, hmm. class. It was uh, very, very time-consuming. And, you know, if you ask me whether everybody should should do this, I think the answer is absolutely no. But should some people uh, try and do it? The answer is absolutely yes. Um, am I willing to spend much of my time doing this? The answer is yes. But I think universities need to take actually a bigger role in this step. Right, right now it's kind of a free market. I think, I think it would be nice if we did it in a, in a better way. So, you know, you, we, we <coughs> rewrite academic papers should should the editorial board of every academic journal uh, have some responsibility to communicate this? Um, by the way, I um, so I've always worked at, at private universities in the U.S. Uh, I, I was a year on sabbatical at Berkeley, but aside from that, I was always at, in private universities. Um, but even private universities in the U.S. are heavily funded by taxpayers' money. Mm-hmm. Every time I have a grant from NSF or NIH or something, it's, it's taxpayers' money at the end. And because of that, I've always felt I have a tremendous obligation uh, to the taxpayers. Uh, so when people call me and they want an advice uh, or when I think about you know, e- expressing some, some opinions, um, I, I think it's actually you know, it's part of the job. But, you know, should everybody do it? Should everybody do it in the same way? I think as a, as a discipline, we owe it to the public. We're getting funded by the public. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to get um, outcome. That's what we, you know, that's what we're getting paid to do. But we also need to educate people so they can live, lead a better life. So if I find something interesting, you know, maybe somebody who works on vaccination 
can, can improve the vaccination, and then as long as the vaccinations are better, everybody's benefiting. In my world, if I find a way for people to you know, think better about their life, make better decisions, and I don't communicate this, it's not clear that I'm providing any, any value. So I think it's incredibly important. Mm -hmm. uh, switching gears to, to relationships, to love, to sex, to dating, where, where do we make the biggest mistakes? Or you know, where is our intuition the most off? Or what are you most interested in, in helping people in that area? How do we even start? So, um, so I think our intuitions are uh, dramatically off in terms of relationship. And I think they're also off in terms of sex. I worry less about sex. Actually, there was, a, there was an interesting piece of research today arguing that uh, men with big bellies uh, are better lovers. <laughs> And if I remember correctly, they said that they last uh, about five more minutes in bed than, than skinny men. So, you know, this is the kind of thing that I'm not sure is part of the human intuition. But you know what? That, that doesn't concern me so much because, you know, even if people are wrong, not, not the end of the world, you know, you might, you might uh, make a mistake. But, but the things that, that worry me are the things that are more uh, long-term. Uh, long-term relationships, for example worry me. People deciding to get uh, married with the wrong, uh, with people that don't uh, suit them. Uh, you know, we, we, we think about divorce as being a bad outcome. You know, of course, divorce is not a good, a good thing, but things that are much worse are things like domestic violence and abuse and um, hopelessness. And so, so there's lots of things about family life that are really terrible. Deciding to have uh, kids too early, not able to give a, a good home uh, to kids. There's lots of things that are wrong in the way that we manage our relationship that are that have long-term devastating effects, and those I think are the are the difficult one. Uh, President Jimmy Carter um, just came out with a new book on uh, on women, and and he's saying that. He thinks that most of the crimes against humanity these days are basically crimes against women. Mm. And he doesn't mean the lean-in movement, you know, and kind of uh, uh, women at the executive level. Uh, he means it's the bottom, you know, the bottom of the, of the, of the pyramid, and not even the very bottom, but you think about the women who don't get a chance to go to school, uh, women who have to stay outside of the family when they have their period, you think about genital mutilation, you think about um, being sold. I mean, you think about all, all, the, all, all the cases. I think there's lots of things that I don't think many of us are a little bit too privileged to, to think about those terrible uh, relationships, but they certainly exist and we certainly need to think about how do we, <clears throat> how do we solve that. You know, there, there are parts of the world in which uh, rape is still considered a, a way to help people cure uh, social uh, STDs, sexually transmitted diseases. And um, there are parts of the world, and if a woman lost her husband, they think that she needs to be raped before she can uh, be remarried. I don't know how we got to this very depressing part. <laughs> you, know, you started so lightly by talking about you know, sex and relationship, and somehow and, uh, dragging down to... Big bellies. Yeah. Do you think that there are institutional changes, you know, like uh, whether it's relating to marriage, that 
society should make or is it just us understanding our perceptions better and you know making sure that we date enough people to know who we should marry who we shouldn't marry or so 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 the sad thing is i don't think that we can date enough to really know hmm. and, and here's the reason uh, when you meet somebody for the first time you're infatuated and you know infatuation is a wonderful feeling but it doesn't last that long right maybe it lasts a year or two and the question you're really asking yourself is how would I feel when infatuation dies and other things take over? So when, when you date somebody, let's say you date them for three months, you're trying to simulate what it would look like being 30 years with this person, you can't really do a good job because you're infatuated. Mm. So you see everything through your eyes of your infatuation. Now let's say it would take a year and a half or two years for the infatuation to die. Now you would have a better view of this. <laughs> But, but how many people can you date this way? Right. right? So, so with dating, we are continuously in a state of in, infatuation. And we're trying to understand how you would feel like after the state of infatuation has died. And, and it doesn't really give us much experience. So it's not that I'm against dating. I think dating gives you some information. But I don't think it gives you enough information and certainly not the relevant information. Do you think it's a better idea to start out as friends? have it evolve from there or is that unrealistic? Most, most likely, yes. And, and for the exact reason we talked about, right? So if, if you start with infatuation, you have a very hard time seeing the non-infatuation version. But if you start uninfatuated, um, you, you can probably simulate better what will happen three, five, seven years uh, down the road. And um, I also think that the advice of other people is incredibly important. Right? Because you are infatuated, you see everything through the glasses of being infatuated, but other people are not. Think about your mother. Your mother understands you, she knows things about you, she can know uh, about that person. And because she's not infatuated, she can actually be more uh, objective. But people have a very, very hard time telling their friends, you know, I think you're really dating somebody awful, you should just stop. Mm-hmm. It's considered a very much a social sin. And, and then, you know, there's big questions about... You know, what is, what is a good institution? You know, so marriage, marriage is a very um, interesting institution. And I became ordained two years ago. So two years ago, I joined some online church. And my, my reason for that is that I wanted to conduct a wedding. And I posted on my blog. I said, hey, I just became ordained. I'm looking forward to conducting a wedding. And um, it's been two years, but finally somebody asked me to conduct a wedding. So in May, I'm going to conduct my first wedding. Wow. So I've been thinking a lot about, you know, this, this institution. It's a very interesting institution, right? So you're basically signing a contract between two people, but you're signing it in front of lots of other people, right? Which is very unique. Mm-hmm. You're spending a lot of money on this and, and you go into it and the contract is very ill-defined. <laughs> right? It's not like, you know, you, you, you buy a house and you do it in a dark room with some lawyers <laughs> and... You're, not, you're, not, you're trying to, to save money on, on the contract. There's no glass of wine or anything. And, and the contract is incredibly detailed. So it's, it's, a, very, it's a very interesting um, contract. Uh, but, but I do think that it, it's worthwhile thinking about the marriage institution and how would we redesign it. So, you know, if we started from scratch, uh, what would you do now? I have a friend, uh, he thinks that marriages should expire every five years. <laughs> uh, both people should opt to renew them. And only if both people opt to renew them, uh, they would keep on going. I'm, I'm not sure that's the right approach, 
But it is interesting to take an institution saying, you know, maybe it's time to re-examine it. How would you, how would you create it? What, uh, what would really make people happier, more satisfied, more connected? And I, I don't have an answer because I haven't experienced um, enough institutions. But I'm, I'm quite sure we could do better than what we have now if we were allowed to. I was just reading Elaine de Baton's uh, How to Think More About Sex. Uh, and he was suggesting that we should be more, maybe more lenient towards adultery or more celebrating when people don't commit adultery, you know, acknowledging how difficult it is over, you know, years of a marriage. Do you think uh, anything should change there? So, so I don't know. And it's, it's an active area of research for me. So uh, I, uh, as, as you know, I've been, I've been very interested in dishonesty. And one mm. of the things that we're doing is we're trying to have a documentary uh, on dishonesty. So we're, we've talked to all kinds of people who've, who've been dishonest, insider trading, doping in sports, accounting fraud, and so on. We also talk to people who are adulterers, and we also talk to um, the guys who run a website called Ashley Medicine. Uh, and this is a website that uh, the tagline is, life is short, have an affair. <laughs> yeah. And they had lots of interesting um, hypotheses about infidelity and I'm not sure I'm not sure if they're right or wrong uh, but we just started doing some experiments with them uh, we're looking at some of their data we're doing some surveys we're doing some experiments and we will we will find out I think what what is the case so so here's an extreme case that I think nobody would disagree with imagine that your significant other is suffering from Alzheimer's and they've been suffering from Alzheimer's for the last five years and we know that one of the most depressed populations are the people who are caretakers. Being a caretaker is incredibly tough, right? The person who is suffering the disease has a, a difficult time, but caretakers, especially with Alzheimer's, is a very, very tough, very tough job because they, they remember everything, they know everything, they experience everything, and, and they, they see the shadow of the person that they used to, <coughs> to love. Uh, it's not the same person anymore. Um, but nevertheless, they, uh, they have these daily repeated obligation to somebody that was there from a long time ago. Ashley Madison has lots of people from that category who have affairs. Now, do you think that's an affair? Hmm. You know, it, it, I, think, I think in that case, uh, very few people would say, yes, uh, stay in this relationship, uh, don't have this kind of companionship, don't have this kind of relationship. I think most people in this, in this case would basically say, we, we understand, we're not going to blame those people for trying to get uh, warmth and care and so on elsewhere, even though it's officially an affair. Now, <laughs> that I think is an edge case because most, most affairs are not like that. But, but if you start from that perspective and then you say, okay, how much are we willing to push it? What other cases are we willing to say that when people don't get everything fulfilled in their own relationship, we were okay with them morally stepping outside? And I don't, I don't have a good answer for this, but, but I think it certainly is interesting. And with, with your work in dishonesty, I'm curious if the solution is to just, you know, be more lenient morally so people have don't have to be as dishonest or if that in fact will encourage people to be dishonest more or just cheat more and do these things get away with more if they if they can i don't think that this dishonesty is good so i don't think it's it's helpful um, i think that dishonesty is a very corrosive force in society 
that as people start acting dishonestly, we stop trusting each other. Mm-hmm. And once we stop trusting each other, lots of things go badly. So, so I don't think that the right approach is to say, let's just accept dishonesty. I think the right approach is to say, let's, cre- let's figure out what institutions uh, we want to create. By the way, we do have one uh, very uh, curious finding. So imagine two people, A and B, they're married to each other, and person A had an affair, and person B found out about it. And now the question is, uh, which one of them, and, and person A stopped having an affair? And so now we're a year later, person A had an affair and stopped, person B found out about the affair. A year later, who is still taking it in a worse way, the affair? Person A or person B? It turns out that person B has a much harder time getting over it. You see, for person A, they can rationalize it in a much better way. They can say something like, I was stressed at work, it's not really that I didn't love that person, I just uh, needed some this, I drank a little bit too much. I mean, they they can tell a story about why this does not really truly reflect on the relationship, while person B is fully consumed with that, and it's very hard for them to go to bed with person A and not think about the other person. Mm-hmm. So what happened is that uh, dishonesty has a very corrosive effect on reputation. Uh, think about banks. Think about all kinds of things. You know, w- would you ever trust somebody completely ever again? And if you wouldn't, then then it just means that you're going to pay a very high price. Uh, for dishonesty at a higher price than you would uh, anticipate. Right. And I guess I'm asking, is the solution that person A and B just have, you know, the expectation that at least, you know, that maybe once or a couple times people are going to mess up and people should just be honest about it and open? Yeah, so I think, yeah. I think as long as you're open about it, then, then everything is simple, right? Because the moment you're all open about it, then there's no uh, dishonesty. Right. I mean, there's still other things going on. But I think that's a much better uh, approach than uh, having things being dishonest. Kristen told me about this interesting study with men with hard-ons. And I guess the, que- the question I have is, is like, whenever men are sexually aroused, is that the worst time to ever make any sort of decision and one should, one should wait? Most, uh, let's, say, let's say that, that it's probably um, a bad time to make any decisions that have to do with long-term <laughs> uh, anything. Um, the, the one thing that I would say people are probably better in making decisions is that when people have are aroused they do understand arousal in a better in a better way so for example we find that people's sexual appetite and willingness to try on new things is increasing when they have when they're aroused mm-hmm. right so you know it's probably not a good time to decide whether to propose a marriage to somebody <laughs> it's probably not a good time to decide whether you are pro or against you know contraceptives um, but but in terms of deciding, you know, should you try something new? Uh, when we're unaroused, we are much more conservative, and we can say, "Oh, I'm not interested in this. I'm not interested in this. I'm not interested in this." But when we're aroused, all of a sudden, our sexual interest increases. We're willing to try all kinds of other things. You know, things that are about that moment. Being in an aroused state, you get a better reading of what you really want at that moment. Last dating question, does technology, whether it's apps or websites, make us happier in dating or has the potential to or help us find better people? Or I think certainly has better uh, potential. I'm a big believer in technology. Every time you think that human beings are making a mistake, it means that technology can help us make a better 
mm-hmm. uh, decision. So I'm big, big believer in, in that. And um, has it made us better? I think not yet. I think right now, most of the technology out there is continuously exposing you to unrealistic images of, of really wonderful people. So if you <laughs> go on any kind of dating website, uh, everybody looks fantastic. Uh, people look exciting, look interesting. Um, and you're dating somebody and you all of a sudden realize their shortcomings and um, other people just look much more exciting and you say, why should I suffer with this? Let me try and look for, for something else. So I think the, it gives us a false sense <clears throat> Of the quality of, of people out there uh, from that regard and I think it uh, reduces our patience in doing so. I also think that technology has kind of this, especially when we have too many options, um, technology has the uh, capability to get us to do things that are destructive for the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So for example in online dating, on, on online, we find that uh, lots of men write too many women that they should they never have the, the reason to write them. <laughs> now, it's easy to write, right? Uh, you can even copy and paste some things and you can create a form letter. But every time you write somebody, if they read it, you've just wasted their time and you just made the system less efficient as a whole. So, you know, if you, if you have to go with somebody to a bar and it takes you real time, it's a real resource, you will think two or three times before you do it. But if it's something that uh, is incredibly easy... You might take the step, and, but you might write a thousand emails and by doing so pollute the system, making it less valuable for everybody. So, so I think right now I am not too happy with the state of online dating. I think we've done it so that it's sometimes fun, but I think we haven't made it really good yet. But, but I'm hopeful. And what would be one like, key principle, short principle that would need to change for technology to be more helpful? I think, I think we would need to understand the cost of the whole system mm-hmm. and we would need to try to optimize the system as a whole and not just the pleasurable of the, ple- the pleasantness right. of the experience. I also think that we need to, de- to learn how to describe people in a better way. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now we describe people based on height and weight and you know, some attributes. This, these are not the attributes that help us figure out whether these people are going to be good uh, romantic partners or not. So I think we need to understand better how to describe people and we need to think about a system that optimizes holistically and not just make something, you know, a bit more fun like Tinder. Right. Maybe uh, in, adi- in addition to Timeful, we might see a, a dating app or website come from you guys? I, uh, I'm, I'm not sure that's uh, next for us. I think we have some other um, Got it. big objectives first. But I, I certainly think that if you look at the broken marketplace, uh, where lots of misery is being created, and not just misery, but um, negative consequences for society. Right. So people are getting married later and later, which is fine. But once people having uh, kids in their 40s, you know, the risk of all kinds of problems uh, are increasing. And it's true that you know, people can have kids uh, when they're older, but it doesn't mean that they, they are healthy. I didn't know that. It's healthier for people to have kids in their 30s? Thirties is fine. Once you move into forty-five, it becomes it becomes it. much more complex. Right. Uh, is there a place for uh, dating based on you know dating sites based on gene matching, or is that bullshit? I'm not sure gene matching. I, th- I think there's probably lots of things to do with smell. Gene, I'm not so sure. I mean, I could ask questions all day, but <laughs> this is this is fascinating. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for the thoughts on, on career, on relationship. The one last question I'll ask you, you know, want you to leave the, the audience with is. 
what would you tell your, let's just say, you know, 21 year old self, you know, knowing what you, what you know now on, on living well? Try to collect a more diverse set of experiences. I think that learning, learning more different things make us into uh, rich individuals with lots to draw on. And how do you invest in yourself and your own uh, set of experiences? That's a great one to, to leave us on. Thank you, Dan. It's always a pleasure. Take care. Safe here. Bye.